Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1965, John List and his family moved into one of the largest houses on one of the nicest streets in Westfield, New Jersey. It was a gaudy mansion on a big plot of land, first built by a 19th century millionaire. The three-story green and white building had 19 rooms, including a ballroom, a library, and two living rooms. It was the kind of house that drew people's attention. But attention was the last thing the Lists wanted. When a neighbor showed up on their doorstep with a pie, John List told the man, We are not friendly people, and we do not like to get involved with neighbors socially. For six years, the Lists kept that promise. Their neighbors barely saw John, his wife Helen, or their three children. They were sure to catch a glimpse of the family on Sunday mornings, when all the Lists would pile into their car and drive to the local Redeemer Lutheran Church. John List never missed a service. They might have seen John List playing catch with his boys in the backyard, or even exchanged a few brief words with him while he gardened. But that was it. Despite their private and reserved nature, the Lists still appeared to be a normal, loving family, from the outside at least. The neighbors had no way of knowing about the resentment and violence that slowly festered inside the cavernous mansion's walls. By the time they discovered the truth, it was already too late. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free exclusively on Spotify. To stream Solved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Solved Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on the 1971 List family murders. This week, we'll cover how a religious family who kept it to themselves were shot to death in their New Jersey home. Next week, we'll dig into the family's complicated private history and why they were murdered, all in the name of God. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
the luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. On the night of December 5th, 1971, New Jersey acting coach Ed Iliano drove to the house of his 16-year-old student, Patty List. During the past year, Iliano and Patty had gotten close, closer than a teacher and his underage student should be. He got into a habit of driving Patty home after their classes twice a week, just so they could have some time to talk alone. And if they were in a particularly deep conversation, he would pull off the road and park for a while. Iliano later swore that their connection was innocent, even though Patty had confessed her love to him at least once. She had also told him that she was afraid of her dad, and she worried that her father might kill her. Back then, he thought Patty was just being dramatic. Now he wasn't so sure. Patty had been missing for a month. Her father may have said the family was on a trip, but Ileano wasn't convinced. On December 5th, Ileano decided to make their relationship explicitly criminal. He drove over to the List's dilapidated mansion in Westfield, New Jersey, and then he snuck inside. Ileano climbed into the dilapidated mansion through a basement window and crept upstairs. The heat was down and the house was cold. But something seemed off. There were lights on throughout the house, and someone had left the radio blaring classical music. Iliano snuck through the house room by room. Finally, he came to a floor-to-ceiling curtain blocking the entrance to the old mansion's ballroom. He pushed the heavy fabric aside, and there, in the low light of the moon, he saw four bodies. Four decaying corpses lay on sleeping bags around the massive room, all dead from gunshot wounds. Their bodies were neatly positioned in the shape of a cross. Blood streaked across the floor where they had been dragged. Patty's mom, Helen List, was dressed in a robe. Her stomach was hard and bloated from a month of decomposition. A small towel was draped over her face. Patty's younger brothers, 13-year-old Frederick and 15-year-old John Jr. lay next to their mother in heavy coats. Their flesh crawled with maggots. Finally, Iliano looked at the last body. The girl was curled into the fetal position, with her face partially covered by her clothes. But Iliano recognized her anyway. It was Patty. Patty? Oh, oh God. Patty! Oh, no. No. 
Iliano likely realized how it would look if he was caught breaking into a house full of dead bodies, especially since one of them belonged to an underage girl who he'd known a little too well. So he ran out the way he came in and drove home. Ed Iliano kept his gruesome discovery to himself for two days before he knew he had to go back and tell the police. Rather than admit he had broken in, he decided to cause a scene so big the authorities would have to get involved. On December 7, 1971, he returned to the List Mansion. Walt, someone's at the List House. A man's banging on their door. They're still out of town, aren't they? Eh, He'll leave when no one answers. I don't think so. He's going around the side. I think you should call the police, Walt. Tell them there's an intruder. All right, all right. I'm calling. Hello? Westfield Police? There's some kind of commotion happening at the List family's house. My wife thinks... Walt? We both think you should send someone to check it out. Sure. It's 431 Hillside Avenue. You can't miss it. It's gigantic. Iliano's plan worked. When two policemen arrived at the scene, they decided to take a look inside. Both the front and back door were locked, but Iliano told them to check if a window was open. The police officers quickly found the unlocked window and climbed inside. A few minutes later, they stumbled across the same horrifying scene that Iliano discovered two days earlier. The smell in here. (coughs) What is it? Mass suicide? Mass murder, more like. Look at the gunshots, all in the back of the head. Can someone open up a window and get some air in here? And turn that radio off. What's the deal with Iliano? He's the girl's teacher or something? He sure knew an awful lot about how to get in here. He might be. Excuse me, officers? Mr. Iliano, please stay in the other room. This is a crime scene. Patty, um, Patty had a grandmother. She lives upstairs. If she's not down here, then maybe she's... Let's go. You stay put. We aren't done with you yet. The cops headed upstairs to search all 19 rooms of the mansion. The entire place was strangely tidy, like the murderer had cleaned up in preparation for the police's visit. There were even freshly washed dishes stacked on the kitchen's drying rack. Police searched through the empty second-floor bedrooms and found a set of stairs leading to a small apartment on the top story. One officer went up for a look. As the cop crept into the third-story hallway, his foot hit a hard lump on the floor and he toppled forward, almost falling on his face. He looked down and let out a scream that echoed through the sprawling house. The man had tripped over the decaying body of Patty List's 84-year-old grandmother, Alma. I can't believe I almost fell on her. She was lying right there. Pull it together. I need you searching the rest of this office. And will someone please find where that music is coming from and turn it off? Fantastic. Now, I think we need to have a talk with the teacher about... Uh, sir? I think you better have a look at what's inside this desk. I'm not so sure Iliano is our man. In the desk, police found two handguns and a few sealed letters. The thickest letter was addressed to Reverend Eugene Rewinkle, 
pastor at the nearby Redeemer Evangelical Lutheran Church. Police quickly tore the envelope open. As Ed Iliano sat in one corner of the mansion and five decaying corpses lay in another, the officers read John List's horrifying five-page note to his former pastor. It was dated November 9th, 1971. Dear Pastor Rewinkle, I am sorry to add this additional burden to your work. I know that what has been done is wrong from all that I have been taught, and that any reasons that I might give will not make it right. I leave myself in the hand of God's justice and mercy. I don't doubt that he is able to help us, but apparently he saw fit not to answer my prayers the way that I hoped they would be answered. This makes me think that perhaps it was for the best as far as the children's souls are concerned. Please remember me in your prayers. I will need them whether or not the government does its duty as it sees it. I'm only concerned with making my peace with God, and of this I am assured because of Christ dying even for me. P.S. Mother is in the hallway in the attic, third floor. She was too heavy to move. In the letter, John List also described exactly how he wanted his family buried. He may have shot them and dragged their corpses around the house, but he still had strong opinions about their funeral arrangements. Police quickly issued a 50-state alarm for his arrest. But there was a problem. No one had seen or heard from List since early November. He could be anywhere, and authorities didn't know where to start looking. Up next, we dive into the police's quest to find John List and their struggle to understand how the seemingly mild-mannered accountant became a mass murderer. History, politics, true crime. The new Spotify original from Parcast has it all. Hi, I'm Carter, and I am thrilled to tell you about the new series, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. It uncovers the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder. She'll expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as JFK, Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, and more. Very Presidential highlights the exploits you never learned in history class, but probably should have. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets. These presidents may have run, but they most certainly can't hide. Follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On December 7th, 1971, police discovered a bloody massacre inside a suburban New Jersey home. 46-year-old John List had shot and killed his entire family and disappeared. 
It took a month for police to realize what had happened and another two days before they uncovered a clue towards List's whereabouts. On December 9th, 1971, a Port Authority cop stumbled across a 1963 Chevy Impala in the long-term parking section of John F. Kennedy Airport. There was nothing particularly special about the car. It was in pretty bad shape and had expired registration stickers. It probably wasn't worth more than the fee it had racked up during its month in the parking lot. But something about it caught the officer's eye. So he decided to check the car's license plates. Hey, I'm out here at JFK. Can I get a check on some plates? Go ahead. License is KBN813. Hang on. Blue Chevy Impala? Yeah, that's it. (laughs) You better get a bottle for whoever stuck you with that shift. You just found yourself a big one. Why? Is it stolen or something? Not exactly. You seen the papers lately? The Impala belonged to 46-year-old John List, a man whose face had been plastered on the front page for days. List had murdered his entire family in Westfield, New Jersey, one month earlier. If he hopped on a flight at JFK, List could be anywhere by now. And because he had likely crossed state lines, it was time to call in the FBI. First, the FBI reached out to List's 29-year-old stepdaughter, Brenda, who was now the closest living member of the family. Brenda first lived with List when she was nine, after he married her mother in 1951. By the time of the murders, Brenda was already out of the house and living in Michigan with her children. When Brenda heard about what happened to her mother and half-siblings, she immediately started to worry that John List might come for her next. But the story she told about her childhood with List didn't have any hint that he would eventually murder his family in cold blood. We were a pretty sweet family, at least for a little bit. Once I was a teenager, it got a little bit more complicated, but John really tried to look after me when him and mom first married. He treated me better than most adults did. So you're willing to reach out to him? (sighs) I didn't say that. Whatever connection he had disappeared when he killed my mom and siblings. I'm already scared that he's coming for me. Now you want me to invite him over? Well, not exactly. He shot my mother in the back of the head while she was still in her bathrobe. And you think I'm just going to... Listen, Brenda. You want to hold him accountable? You want to make sure he pays for what he did? This is the best option we have right now. Sure, fine. If it helps catch him, do whatever it takes. In December 1971, days after the news of the murder made headlines, Reverend Eugene Rewinkle wrote a statement for the press. In it, he begged for List to reach out. John, as your pastor, I am still very much your friend who will always support you, stand by you, and help you. The Lord God, whom you know and believe in, will not forsake you in these most agonizing times. Please contact me. Rewinkle's statement ended with a personal message from Brenda. In a desperate plea, she asked Liz to get in touch and told him that he was all she had left. She even called him Daddy. Of course, Brenda hadn't written a word of it. It was just a trap set by the FBI. But John List refused to take the bait. Neither Rewinkle nor Brenda ever heard from the man, and that was all right with Brenda. 
but her stories about List confused police. He seemed so normal until the day he snapped. The more police spoke to people who knew List, the stranger the whole situation became. List was a quiet religious man who did accounting for paper companies in Xerox. He was fastidious, organized, and straight-laced. He even mowed the lawn in a shirt and tie. From the outside, John List seemed headed straight towards a pension, grandchildren, and maybe a retirement community in Florida. Instead, he brutally murdered his entire family and went on the run. The FBI's wanted poster showed a man who could be any conservative middle-aged father in 1971. His thinning hair was cut short and carefully combed back. He wore a suit, a tie, and a pair of horn-rimmed glasses that were at least a decade out of fashion. Interestingly, List's glasses had the potential to be just the lead the FBI was looking for. List frequently bought new lenses to keep up with his changing prescription. So FBI agents sent copies of List's wanted poster to eye doctors all across the United States. He also apparently had an awful case of hemorrhoids, so they sent posters to pharmacists as well. Yet these medical needs weren't much to go on. All the FBI could do was wait for an eye doctor to spot him or for a pharmacist to ring up a tube of Preparation H and recognize List's face. As the FBI and New Jersey police struggled to start their search, a Westfield mortician named Frederick Poppy was dealing with his own set of problems. The 50-year-old Poppy had the bodies of five murder victims with extensive burial instructions from their killer, but no money to pay for their funerals. List only left behind $24.14 when he fled. We can't just bury an entire family for free, Poppy. It won't be for free. I'll help round up some money. I don't know. It feels like we're biting off more than we can chew. You know that the church sends a lot of work our way. If we do well by them this time, it'll come back to us. And the family deserves a proper burial. Fine, but just do it cheap. I don't care what List's letter said. He lost any right to control what happens to his kids when he put bullets in their heads. Now stop fooling around on that organ and get back to work. Sorry. The funeral funds found a slight boost when Reverend Rewinkle and the Lutheran Church offered to help pay for the cemetery plots. The list children also had small life insurance policies that cashed out. Yet this wasn't enough for Poppy to pay for the entire burial. He then went to the List family mansion to see if there was anything worth selling. He arrived less than a week after the bodies were discovered, but the place had already been picked clean. The police had taken 150 pieces of evidence from the house. The floors were littered with empty picture frames, and even the family photos were gone. The furniture that remained was old and barely worth anything. All the furniture in the house is for sale, gentlemen. Feel free to take a look around. Maybe steer clear of the ballroom, though. Most of this stuff hasn't been in fashion since 1965. Isn't that what an antique dealer is looking for? Antiques? This doesn't exactly qualify. Who wants to buy a dead family's dining room table anyway? It's a good table. And the money's going to an even better cause. It'll help fund the funeral for Helen and her children, Patty and Frederick and... All right, all right. I'll give you $550. For the table? (laughs) No, for everything. Fine. Between the life insurance and the furniture sale, 
Poppy only raised around $2,500. It may not have been much, but he figured out a way to make it work. As Poppy later remembered, Each and every one of the deceased was placed in a metal casket with an eggshell crepe interior. They weren't lavish. They were inexpensive, but they were presentable. The List family funeral took place on Saturday, December 10th, 1971, at Redeemer Evangelical Lutheran Church, their former place of worship. Hundreds of onlookers filled the pews and spilled out into the streets as Reverend Rewinkle said a few words. His speech carefully avoided John List and the circumstances behind the family's deaths. Instead, Rewinkle spoke broadly about the fleeting nature of life and how quickly death can appear. Listening to him, Ed Iliano thought that Rewinkle's words rang a little false especially coming from the man who received John List's confession letter. But eventually, Rewinkle finished his speech and the coffins were transported to their final resting places at Westfield's Fairview Cemetery. At least a dozen armed police officers waited on the outskirts of the cemetery, searching the crowd for a glimpse of John List or his horn-rimmed glasses. But the coffins were lowered into the ground and the crowd dissipated with no sign of List. Police knew it was a long shot, List had been gone for over a month already. By that time, he could easily be in another state or another country. Up next, police notice a striking similarity between List and another suit-wearing criminal on the run, D.B. Cooper. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Too Faced Cosmetics and Better Than Sex Mascara. The name literally says it all. This mascara is that good. There is a formula for anyone and everyone available in original, waterproof, and chocolate that thickens, lengthens, and curls to give you all the drama and volume. Or try the new Naturally Better Than Sex. It has a 98% naturally derived formula. Shop Too Faced Better Than Sex Mascara at Sephora today. Now, back to the story. On November 9, 1971, 46-year-old John List shot his wife, his mother, and his three children in Westfield, New Jersey. Then he drove to New York's JFK airport and disappeared. Two weeks later, on November 24th, a well-dressed middle-aged man boarded a flight in Portland, Oregon. He said his name was Dan Cooper. Once the plane was in the air, Cooper calmly handed the flight attendant a note. It said he had a bomb in his briefcase. Cooper demanded $200,000 and four parachutes, or else he would blow up the flight. Cooper was so calm and quiet during the entire hijacking that most passengers didn't even realize they were in danger. Once Cooper got his ransom and released the hostages, he got back on the plane and took off towards Mexico City. But not long after takeoff, Cooper strapped on one of his parachutes, opened the plane's rear stairs, and dove into the night sky with the money in hand. He disappeared without a trace. The FBI sketch of Cooper bore a striking similarity to the photo on John List's wanted poster, 
and the age and conservative dress seemed like a match. And the timing lined up, too. By all accounts, John List was a meek and timid man. He didn't seem like the kind of person who would parachute out of an airplane in the middle of a thunderstorm. But he also didn't seem like the kind of person who would wake up one morning and brutally murder his entire family. So it was at least possible that List and Cooper were the same man. It was an intriguing theory, but it didn't get authorities any closer to actually finding List. The trail was already cold by the time they discovered the bodies, and it kept getting colder by the day. The FBI had no leads. Westfield police had taken to staking out the graves at Fairview Cemetery in hopes that List would show up to pay his respects to the family he killed. He never did. So without any clear path forward or even an adequate explanation for why, John List killed his entire family. Police grabbed onto an even more outlandish theory. Satanism? That's right. But hear me out. Patty's friend said she'd been interested in witchcraft, and she smoked marijuana. Kind of a big jump from grass to Satan. Listen, John List was a religious, God-fearing man. Can't you imagine how he might be pushed to do something extreme if he discovered his oldest child had turned demonic? The amount of logical leaps you're making is, uh... Is it any less believable than a man like List suddenly deciding to kill his family for no reason at all? Yeah, you got me there. The Westfield police worked hard to dig up anything they could that tied the List family, and 16-year-old Patty in particular, to devil worshippers. They spoke to a group of supposed Satanists in a nearby town, and even investigated Ed Iliano's drama club, in case the whole class was somehow a cover for a teenage devil cult. It wasn't, of course. It was just a group of teenagers who were still grieving the horrific death of their friend. Police eventually gave up on the Satanism angle, but not before the idea spread around the town. At the end of 1971 and into 1972, local teenagers started breaking into the List family mansion late at night to hold their own satanic ceremonies, likely inspired by the police investigation. And when they did, it was the mortician Frederick Poppy who had to deal with it. After organizing the funeral, Poppy had kindly agreed to handle the list estate. That meant that the old mansion and all the teenagers creeping around inside became his responsibility. But it wouldn't be for long. In the early morning hours of August 30th, 1972, Poppy got another phone call about the list mansion. This time, it wasn't about a break-in. Hello? It, it what? Is there anything... Right. I'm on my way. Who is that, dear? I have to head over to the List House. Sorry if I woke you. It just isn't right. Why do they have to call you every time some kids break in to do whatever they do? It should be a matter for the police. It isn't just some kids this time. It's worse. What do you mean? It's on fire. The whole place is up in flames. The fire department is already on its way, and now I suppose I am too. Well, after all the horrors that house has seen, a fire might just be the best thing to happen to it. There's nothing you can do by being there. Lie back down with me. I said I'd take care of the place. This is my problem, but it shouldn't be yours. Go on back to sleep, hon. 
By the time firefighters extinguished the flames the next afternoon, the house was in ruins. The last remaining piece of the List family's life in Westfield was gone. Later, they found that the fire was no accident. Someone had doused the house in kerosene. There were no arson suspects, but there was also no one left to care what happened to the List mansion. By the end of 1972, both the FBI and the police had all but given up on finding John List. Over the next decade, the case remained open, but no one was actively pursuing List. There were new murders to solve and killers to stop. The FBI periodically sent out press releases in the hopes that some journalists might feel like writing up an old story. Few did. At least not until February of 1987, when the Weekly World News decided to fill a few pages with an article about John List called The Perfect Crime. The Weekly World News was a supermarket tabloid best known for its fictional articles about the adventures of a creature named Bat Boy. But this time, its reporting actually paid off. You go ahead, Wanda. You were in line first. No, no, after you. Besides, I have some catching up to do on the news. Looks like they finally found Bigfoot. <laughs> Let's see what other enlightening items the Weekly World News has for us today. Ah, the perfect crime. I... Oh. What is it? Shh, hang on. Ma'am? Want to unload your cart? Ma'am? What? Oh, right, sorry. Let me... let me get this newspaper, too. Eh, Bigfoot couldn't hide from us forever. (laughs) 54-year-old Wanda Flannery recognized the photo of John List immediately. But she knew the man as Bob Clark. For the past two years, she had lived next to Bob and his wife, Dolores, in a condo complex near the Denver airport. They hadn't gotten particularly close, but Wanda knew Bob well enough to notice the similarities between him and John List. Bob, like List, was an uptight, straight-laced man with a background in accounting. Like List, he was an active member of the local Lutheran church. He fit the physical description perfectly as well. They even had the same scar behind their right ears. Bob wasn't exactly forthcoming about his background either. Every time Wanda had tried to ask him about his past, he had brushed her off. There were too many similarities for this to be a coincidence. So Wanda went next door with the weekly world news in hand to talk to Dolores. But Dolores couldn't or wouldn't accept that her new loving husband could be a mass murderer. Dolores told Wanda that she would show Bob the article, but when Wanda checked back a few days later, Dolores said she'd thrown it away. By then, even Wanda was starting to doubt herself. Bob Clark might have been a little strange, but he didn't seem like a killer. The weekly World News wasn't exactly a trustworthy news source anyway, so she let it drop. But two years later, Wanda stumbled across something that rekindled her suspicions. And this time, she knew she needed to take matters into her own hands. Thanks again for tuning into Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with part two of the List family murders. For more information on John List, 
Uh, amongst the many sources we used, we found Death Sentence, the inside story of the John List murders by Joe Sharkey, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Solved Murders for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Solved Murders exclusively on Spotify, just open the app and type Solved Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solve Murders True Crime Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Solve Murders was written by River Donahue, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Bill Butts, Joe Hernandez, Kimlin Tran, and Jen Wong. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. It's the most powerful position in American politics, and arguably the world. But behind the oath to preserve, protect, and defend lie dark secrets posed to leave some legacies in disgrace. Don't forget to check out the new Spotify original from ParCast, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.